Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a weekly series of podcasts about happiness and work culture. Hello there, it's good to have you back. This is Bruce Daisley. Thank you for joining us. You can find all of our episodes at our website, which is eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. And you can find uh, things we're interested in and our, all of our discussion on the episodes on our Twitter handle. And if you search for Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, you'll find that. Today's episode is about rest. And I want you to imagine if the stories we told ourselves had been different. If it hadn't been the hare and the tortoise, but something else. The problem with the hare and the tortoise is the hare totally messed it up for himself, basically by being a bell end. Imagine if the moral of the hare and the story was this. The hare got up, he'd sprinted half the way down there, had a kip, but he had a lucky escape because he just got over the line in time, got the job finished. Because that's a better lesson based on what we know. So today's lesson is this, you get more done by working less. And, and that isn't because you're lazy, you're resting because a combination of rest, exercise, holiday allows you to reach the maximum output that you're capable of. You can reach your maximum output if you add rest to what you do. The most that you can offer yourself to your employer, to yourself, to your life, is by working in bursts and taking rests. So the hare, by having a rest, should be doing exactly the right thing based on all the evidence we've seen. Of course, who can we tell about that? Aesop's told these fables now, printed them, peddled them to kids, which is just about the worst thing you could do. He's told these lies, empirically unproven lies, that resting is a bad thing. Anyway, coming soon, my story about the slug and the bumblebee. The bumblebee comes out, does most of the distance, has a kip, goes on an interesting diversion, still comes home to win the prize, with illustrations by Quentin Blake. Watch out. Anyway, the thing is, these stories were written in a different time, probably before your boss knew how to check in on you. And so consequently, if you didn't look like you were busy, you weren't working. We know these days, most of us love our jobs. And time and time again, we've probably I've probably mentioned that here, unemployed people are more depressed, they suffer from illness more. People with jobs tend to have a higher self-regard, higher self-esteem. So today we're going to be talking about the the book Rest by Alex Su Jung Kim Pong. Rest has an opinion on these things. 
He talks about rest. He talks about creativity. He talks about work. Not only did we have a wonderful discussion on the tape, but Alex followed up with me afterwards with an email. And he said, there's a romantic model of creativity across art, across literature, even across corporate life, which places a premium on passion and intensity. We've got this idea that the greatest artists throw everything they have into their work and hold back nothing. As a result, creation is often cast as an act of sacrifice or self-destruction. This is reinforced or acted out in a way that many creatives and company founders work long hours, neglecting oneself and one's family. They appear to burn out and, and really it's, it's by the noble sacrifice of their relentless work. And what the people in rest show us, and Alex mentions people like Charles Darwin, Charles Dickens, you're going to hear a, a litany of incredible literary figures. But what the people in rest offer us is a model which you can do brilliant work you can grapple with the biggest questions you'll ever have. You can give everything that you have and do it again and again. He finishes, he said to me in his email, they may pour them entire selves into their work, but deliberate rest allows them to refill themselves and allow themselves to dive deeper into their fields, explore new directions. Work less to do more. Imagine that. Imagine if in our jobs, if by working five hours, in focusing two bursts, we could actually get more done than by sitting at that desk for nine hours. So here he is, the author of Rest. This is Alex Sujong Kimpong. I'm, I'm so glad you, you've joined us. And, and I, I think a couple of things. I really enjoyed reading your book. I also watched a, a fabulous discussion that you had with Ariana Huffington. And actually, it, it seems like a sign of a, ch- a change in the, the way that business is thinking about work and rest. And you talk about a, a number of specific things there. But I wonder how you found yourself adopting that as a, as a theme that you're interested in. It is the case that there is at least slowly and halt and haltingly this movement to rethink the eight-hour workday or the five-day work week more generally to think differently about the role that work plays in people's lives the role that it should play in our days and the way we think about ourselves for me personally this is the subject of rest in its place I got interested in when I was on um, a sabbatical at Microsoft Research a few years ago. Living in Silicon Valley and being a consultant, I have a, a lot of experience with juggling multiple projects and having clients who always want updates and doing a lot of multitasking. When I went to England, I had this experience of reading tons of stuff, getting an enormous amount of work done, but at the same time, feeling like I was living this much more leisurely kind of life. I had time in a way that I did not when I was in California. You know, at first I thought that this was, you know, your typical American going to, you know, ancient British university kind of experience. But I realized maybe actually there is something really serious here. That this was a signal that the way in which we normally work and the assumptions that we make that, you know, that long hours are both inevitable and inescapable if you want to do good work. Maybe those actually are wrong. Maybe, in fact, they're backwards. This is deeply counterintuitive. You know, if you're late trying to get someplace, you don't slow down in order to get there. You speed up. And more generally, in if you're behind in work, you don't work less, you work more. And I think we all live now in a world in which we 
exist in this kind of perpetual state of never being caught up, of there never being a point when, when you can say you're really done with everything. Partly this is a function of living in a global economy that describes itself as being fast-paced, always on 24-7. It's hyper-competitive. Also, I think, you know, in knowledge and creative work, you really are never quite finished. There's always a little more you can do to make, to make whatever you're doing a little bit better. My experience at, you know, on sabbatical made me think that this was really something worth rethinking. It was confirmed by my experience writing my second book. And one of the things when I was writing that was I had spent most of my life starting writing somewhere between 10 and midnight. And for years had had the style of working that, like a lot of people, involved really late hours, an unstable combination, you know, caffeine and loud music and fatigue. And you assume that you put all those things together in just the right mix. You know, finally, you'll get some good ideas that you can, you know, that, that form the basis of, you know, your paper or whatever. And this is the sort of style that works well enough for people for, for some time. It's the it's the college model, isn't it? It's, it's what exactly. we, we associate right. working hard at college with late night caffeine and and sort of being on deadline. Precisely. And it's the model yeah. we have that's broken in terms of work. No, and it's one that we you know we very often carry with us into the workplace because it's it's how we know how to work. It generally you know it often has worked well enough for us. If you are you know, working in or creative industries or you know finance or law. There are plenty of times that you're going to be at the office late at night anyway. So it's a model that kind of maps pretty nicely onto those kinds of workplaces. But I found, you know, I was I was working full time as well. That was just not a sustainable model. And so I tried flipping the day and getting up really early to write. And I found that, okay, first off, I am not a morning person. I have never, ever been a morning person. But I found after a couple of weeks of trying this, that getting up at 5 a.m. to write meant that, first of all, I was writing completely without distractions, including self-distraction, right? If I'm going to get up, you know, if I'm going to haul myself out of my comfortable bed, I'm not going to waste time on Facebook, right? I'm going to actually get stuff done. I also had incredibly good ideas in, that, in those early hours that I wasn't sure that I would have any time in the rest of the day. And finally, that a couple hours in that kind of state produced enough work so that I was basically done with the book for the day by like nine or 10 o'clock. You know, for a trade press book that was on a pretty hard deadline, it was really eye-opening to go from this model of late nights, kind of frantic work, you know, the, uh, spend 18 hours working continuously on something to a model of working like four hours in a super structured kind of way and actually getting it done. That experience also made me think, you know, actually, you don't need 12 hours a day in order to, in order to do a really significant piece of work. If you're really mindful about it and well-organized and a couple other things, then it seems like you can actually get this stuff done in fewer hours than you would expect. And then I started looking at the lot. And so after the book was done, I started looking some of the lives of other writers and scientists and people who uh, who were really well-known, like Nobel Prize winners. Is it worth enlisting yeah. some of these people? Because the, the list sure. of people who've stumbled upon your discovery is remarkable, isn't it? 
I, I studied history of science in school. And so my default is to kind of sort of reach for the, you know, those biographies on my bookshelf. And so these are people like Charles Dickens and Charles Darwin, you know, authors like Toni Morrison, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Haruki Murakami, the sort of Japanese novelist, innumerable, you know, lots of other scientists, Rosalind Franklin, who, who was a sort of frenemy of Watson and Crick's when they were doing, you know, developing the, the DNA model. Even, you know, Scott Adams, the guy who, you know, the, the, the creative brain behind Dilbert. What I found looking at their daily schedules was that when you actually broke it down, these people spent a lot less time actually engaged in what, you know, a boss would consider labor than we might think. Darwin, who for me is a real, who is a kind of exemplar, he's like the Usain Bolt of creativity and deliberate rest worked about four or five hours a day, super, you know, and then he was done. You know, he would like literally stop in mid-sentence and then go off and do other things. And he was also, and what I found looking at these lives was that not only did they work less, but they took long vacations. They, you know, had a lot of leisure time in their days. There was a lot of consistency in the way that they rested. It turns out that, and uh, that, there's a lot of work in the psychology of creativity and in neuroscience that helps explain why it is that certain kinds of practices can enhance creative thinking, you know, lateral thinking or stimulate formation of, uh, formation of insights. And it turns out that what the story you can tell is that these people had stumbled upon a kind of rhythm of work that combined really tightly focused, well-organized periods, sort of intensive work, you know, work that's really designed to get into a deep flow state with substantial periods of what looked like unproductive time that actually seemed to give their creative subconscious time to explore ideas that had occupied their conscious hours and which allowed them to have the kind of nudge them toward having insights or aha moments in what looks like those those unproductive hours. This turns out to be a kind of, of formula for both stimulating creative thinking at the daily level and also sustaining creative lives over the course of decades. One of the other really notable things is that lots of the people in, in the book are people who are productive into their 70s or 80s or very occasionally even later, that the model of a romantic model create, you know, creativity as something that essentially consumes you and burns you out. You know, or for that matter, the model that has obtained in a lot of, let's say, game development is one that is romantic, but, but it turns out maybe not necessary. And that by learning how to combine work and rest in these ways, it becomes possible to do better work in fewer hours per day and to be able to pursue that work over the course of your entire life, you know, rather than until you're 40. But it was when I, when I found that combination of the biographies and the science that made me think there's an interesting story here that has enough of you know, that has a foundation that is worth, that makes it worth, worth sharing with people. So that's how the project came about. 
And there's sort of certain core strands, aren't there, of, of your work? So you, it's not specifically just work. It's work and right. exercise and sleep and vacation. For a future episode, I was I was chatting to uh, Tony Schwartz a, a couple mm-hmm. of uh, nights ago, and he was talking about his initiative, which he he talks in a similar vein about pulses of work and, and bursts of work. But he, he's got this um, theme of take back your lunch, this idea that, we can all, with a single step, try and push back. And and you talk uh, about the the commonality or the, the recurring theme of people going for walks and people actually taking this. Even the most simple forms of exercise can re-energize their their approach to the the work they've got left. Yes. So you know, I think that the you know, one of the one of the important things that you see in in my book. I think you also see versions of it in Tony's work and other people who are writing around the set of issues is that none of us is advocating not working. There is an older strain of writing on leisure that basically takes the position that work is for chumps. You know, the really smart person just avoids you know working as much as possible. I start from a very different kind of position, which is that there are a few things that I love more than working really well. You know, getting into that state where you are immersed in a problem, you, know, you have the sense that the solution is at hand, even if you don't quite see it yet. But that kind of flow state. I think that this that this is something that is true for pretty much all the people I write about. And I think for most creative people, there's that sense that this is that's where that's where they want to live. The people I write about you know, are remarkable in that they organize their lives in order to have as much of that time as possible. The paradox is that they don't organize their days around around spending all of their time actually working. Their critical insight is that there's a rhythm to work and rest, which makes them partners rather than competitors in a really good life. I think it's also the case that there is plenty of science to back up this argument, that the more you're able to get into a state of really deep focus, the more creative you'll be. I think that the ability to combine periods of immersion in work with detachment from work turns out to be a kind of magic key to both being able to restore the physical and mental energy that you spend working, but also encouraging your creative, your kind of uncontrollable creative subconscious to keep working on problems even when you've gone on to do other things like go for a hike. There's a really cool body of literature now shows that walking turns out to have a demonstrable positive impact on creative thinking. And particularly, and you take people, you know, you test them using conventional psychological, you know, measure, uh, creativity tests where you're, you know, getting them to think of as many novel uses for some ordinary object like a pencil or a clock as they can. You know, you test them, let's say, before a walk and afterwards. And people who go on even walks for just a few minutes demonstrate increased abilities to formulate novel uses for ordinary objects, which psychologists treat as a measure of creative ability. But it's also the case that lots of the people in my book spend a lot of time out on walks. You know, Charles Darwin actually 
built a walking path in you know, essentially in his backyard. He moved to the outskirts of London, to the village of Down, partly because there was really good walking there. But after being there for a couple of years, he decided, actually, I want my own path. He built this quarter mile long loop. The evidence suggests generating, letting his mind wander and generating ideas that he then took up the next day. The recurrent theme of a lot of your people that you've looked at is that rest actually correlates with higher output and higher productivity, whether it's Winston Churchill, who was fond of an afternoon nap, but his butler said that the reason why he was able to do two days work every day was because he was getting that rest every day. Productivity and rest seem to be good partners rather rather than opposing. Yes, it turns out that work and rest are not opposites. We often think that they are. We think that they're competitors for our time. When structured well, they are not. You know, they're partners. They build on each other. I think Churchill is a really great example because he's a nice model of someone who earlier in his life tended to kind of burn the midnight oil, uh, stayed up late. During World War I, he got into this habit of getting up really early and then having a nap in the, you know, in the middle of the day. Even during during the darkest days of World War II, during the, you know, during the Blitz, he would, after lunch, go take a nap for you know, 90 minutes or two hours. You contrast that with you know, Adolf Hitler, who, as Norman Oler documents in his recent work, Blitz, used various pharmacological methods to try and stay up for days at a time, micromanaging the war. I think in that case, the results are really, the the contrast is super stark and the results speak for themselves. You know, more generally, I think that there are lots of examples from military history, from politics, people who are great leaders, who recognize that in order to meet the challenges that history has put before them, in order to do their best work, they need to devote some time to rest, whether it's simply to recover their strength or whether it is to give them time to look past today's agenda, to think about what things are over the horizon, to to allow odd ideas or novel things that they've seen to kind of settle in their minds and to form patterns turns out for them to be absolutely essential. There was a recent New York Times piece about former Secretary of State George Shultz and his practice of taking one hour every week when he would basically lock himself in his office with a pad of paper, no appointments, and he would just think about the world and what was going on, what big challenges he thought were coming America's way. You know, when you're Secretary of State, you've got a thousand people who always want to see you at once. Crises everywhere. It's really easy to get into a seriously reactive mode and to never get out. And what Schultz recognized was that in order to do a good job, to get beyond just reacting to today's events, he needed... You know, he needed to build in, to schedule this regular time where he would detach from today's agenda in order to have time to think long term. That's another great example, what I call in the book deliberate rest. You know, rest that is designed to both to provide mental and physical restoration, but also to give your to give you time 
to allow your creative mind to work. You also see examples with this with you know people who go on sabbaticals, right? Bill Gates taking a taking a week off every year, you know, to go on his Think Week. There are lots of examples of people who, in contrast to the Marissa Myers or the Elon Musks or you know Michael Arrington, you know, who argues that. If you run a company and you're not working 70 or 80 hours, then basically you're trying to do it as a part-time job and you're not serious. In fact, show that uh, that structured time for rest is actually really valuable and helps them, you know, helps them think more long-term, uh, helps them establish priorities. Um, helps them have new ideas and helps them be better managers and leaders. That was the interesting thing I found in in your work is that you talk about um, structured time, actually, Mm -hmm. and and we regard structure and rules as something alien to creativity. But structured time actually are a very strong partner of creativity. And they are. I'm trying to think about an application of your work to most people's real lives. So it strikes me that there's a recurrent theme that four hours flow in the morning seems to be an immensely powerful thing. If people have got work to write, presentations to write, things to do, powering through those things in the morning seems to be helpful. It strikes me that trying to structure your week is probably a good thing for anyone to think about. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, and one of the you know, one of the enduring lessons of people who discover deliberate rest is that they do not leave rest to chance. Even a hundred years ago, rest was not something that the world just gave you. Rest wasn't something that you took once you had finished everything, you know, sort of everything that was on your schedule, because you never finished everything that was on your schedule. Instead, you have to take the approach that rest is something that you're going to take. You you put it into your schedule, you defend it against a world that wants to distract you with a thousand other things, you protect it. That requires being more organized about how you spend your time. Among other things, it requires learning how to say no to a lot of stuff, even to things sometimes that are uh, things that are attractive. It certainly means learning how to say no to to things that are less important. Because we see creativity as something that has an element of unpredictability about it. And also as something that in the romantic model of of artistic lives or creative lives is itself a kind of generator of chaos. We live in an age after all that celebrates a disruptive innovation. Structure, order, uh, that regular schedules are the enemy of creativity, that they are creativity killers. It is the case getting, getting into a rut, um, that doing the same, uh, you know, that, uh, that constraining yourself and doing only the same things every day may hinder creativity. But the evidence is really good that, cre- uh, that regular schedules actually enhance creative lives because for one thing, even if you're a painter or you're a designer, there's a lot of work that you're doing that doesn't require being in the very deepest flow state. But it's also the case that starting work on something ordinary triggers more creative states and more creative ideas. So you know, the model of getting inspired and then starting to work on an idea is actually, for, uh, for many people, backwards. 
people like you know, Raymond Chandler or Ernest Hemingway found was that you start work and then you get inspired. Um, as Stephen King puts it, a regular schedule is great because it, the muse knows where to find you. If you are at your desk every day from, you know, from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m., that regularity gives them, provides, it doesn't squash creativity. That structure and regularity allows creativity to flourish. It also provides an important, useful break on it in the sense that having regular work times, having regular schedules both turn out to stimulate creativity, but also to sustain it in the sense that when you work that way, you don't have to work 12-hour days, right? You don't have to work until you're exhausted because you know that you can come back tomorrow and resume work on this problem or this paragraph, you're more likely to get stuff done. And so that means that you're more likely to hit your deadlines, whether they are you know, shipping a piece of software or delivering a manuscript to your editor. But it also means that you're less likely over the long run to burn out. You're able to you know, have a longer and more prosperous career. And I think you know, this is, it's a version of what we've seen over and over again over the last hundred or so years. The assumption that extending work time leads to linear increases in productivity is true only in the short run, and it's absolutely false in the long run. Whether you're talking about factory workers, you know, people in law enforcement, or you know, scientists, or doctors, you can get increased productivity in a few weeks of crunch time. But after that, people start making mistakes. They, you know, they miss things. You even get increases in things like bad ethical behavior. So that even though people are working longer hours, the amount that they're able to get done in the in those hours goes down significantly. The highly creative examples are just a subset of that more general phenomena. Long hours for brief periods can can yield creative bursts, but. They're, but in the long run, they are bad for both organizations and for individuals. The final thing I'd, I'd love you to talk about briefly is that it strikes me that there's a few things that people can implement in their life right now. The critical thing that I think we've touched on but not quite covered is the importance of sleep. And I think you say it's like the, the single most important thing you could do is, is get more sleep. Why, mm -hmm. why is sleep such an important component of creativity and success at work? Well, first off, I think that sleep turns out to be a lot more active than we realize. At the physiological level, it turns out when we sleep, our brains are actually super busy. One expression of this is in dreams. Another thing that's going on is that our brains actually are doing a bunch of chemical and neurological housekeeping. People who sleep less have less time to do things like clear out beta amyloid plaques and various toxins that seem to be implicated in things like dementias later in life. It's also the case that chronic chronic lack of sleep is implicated in increased stress, you know, heart disease, you know, all kinds of really bad stuff. For all of those reasons, sleep turns out to be an essential foundation for you know, for sustainable creative lives. Really creative and prolific people do seem to learn how to, in a way, use sleep to help them be more creative. 
Linus Pauling, for example, the guy who won you know, two Nobel Prizes, you know, a lot of critical work applying insights from quantum physics into chemistry. He talked about how he would pose problems to himself before going to bed. It was basically, he was trying to get himself, give himself problems to, to dream about. He learned that over the course of the next several nights or sometimes the next several weeks, he would eventually come up with an answer to, the, to these problems. There were a couple golfers, ben, I think Ben Hogan and Jack Nicholas, who talked about dreaming about their golf shots, which to me is an, you know, an absolutely incredible thing that you would be able to pay such, such a great sense of awareness of like where your hand, you know, the angle of your hand or how tightly you're holding, holding the club, that you could actually dream about it and think about, you know, and come up with ways to improve it. But it's also the case that people who work naps into their uh, into their daily schedule and get some creative benefit from it. You know, Salvador Dali, the the painter, had an amazingly detailed procedure for using naps to kind of recover ideas from his subconscious. He lays it out in a book called 50 Secrets of Magic Craftsmanship, which has a lot of stuff in it that's completely bonkers as you might expect from Dali. The description how you take a nap in order to generate creative ideas is amazingly specific and well thought out. It's really easy to sort of to see to see him doing this himself and just you know simply describing what he does after lunch when he's when he's starting work on a work on a painting. So sleep feels to us like something that is disposable or yeah, uh, that is uh, that is at best, you know, a regrettable break because we're not consciously working. Then it feels like time that we could be spend uh, spending more productively. But in fact, when you sleep, you are spending it productively. In that respect, it is a great example of the way that rest often looks like something that doesn't deliver benefits something that competes with our working lives, but in fact works with our working lives and makes, it, makes our working days better and makes us better able to be you know, good thinkers, good leaders, good managers. Are you optimistic about sort of rest becoming more a part of our balanced lives? You know, I think there is a growing body of evidence in favor of, in favor of more rest I think we also have a growing number of examples of companies who, whether they are experimenting with things around the margins, encouraging people not to send you know, or look at email in the evenings to more substantive rearrangements of the day, like scheduling time in the day where nobody has to look at email, nobody, nobody can schedule meetings. You, know, you set aside time for really focused work or things where you're shortening the workday from eight hours to six hours, or from five days to four days. There are enough of these experiments now to show that it's possible to take the inefficiencies and the slack that we know are caused by stuff like the deluge of emails, or badly planned meetings, or workplace interruptions, or self-distraction. If you cut those out, it's possible to construct a workday that is just as productive that is shorter, that gives you more time to spend with 
family or learning new things, having other experiences that may eventually feed into or of your feed into your work, thereby allowing you to both do good work and to have a good life. I mean, I think it's, you know, it is increasingly clear that that is a choice that we are capable of making and capable of making work. And I think that there are plenty of obstacles to making it something that is more widely shared. It is, it's always easy to justify overwork, making the, the somewhat counterintuitive case that working less in particular kinds of ways can actually make you a better worker and a more productive worker, you know, remain something of an uphill, uphill climb. But I think more people are learning how to make it. And we have more examples of companies that, have, uh, that are putting it into practice. So I think for the so I am yeah so I am actually optimistic that uh, that 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 this is a way of working that will be more accessible to people and be taken more seriously by companies in you know, in in the future. Thank you so much. I could have listened to you all day. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the book. I'll check out the distraction book as well. I had not um, read that one. So um, oh, thanks. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You know when you hear something and you think, that makes total sense, but I've got no chance at all of persuading people at work about that. Work less to achieve more. But you know what? While I've been putting this episode together, I've really noticed something myself. For a long time, I've sort of sunk into this habit of doing emails in the evening. And by sort of long time, I mean definitely the last 10 years. And we'll go on and we'll see in a future episode that that actually achieves the opposite of what you think. But I fell victim of it as much as anyone else. And I caught myself one night last week, and I'd really invite you to do this. Caught myself one night last week, sitting doing emails. And I I took stock and I thought, how many emails have I actually done in the last 30 minutes? 
sort of sitting there, I was looking around, I was reading and rereading them. There's really strong evidence that the longest we can work in a week is 50 hours. And I was the sort of proof of it. I was working longer, but it was almost self-defeating. It was almost every hour of spending was, was actually just making me more and more tired. There's an interesting case study in Tony Schwartz's book, The Way We're Working Isn't Working. And he looked at an example of people at Boston Consulting Group who were asked as part of an experiment to not work for one night a week. And the results were so extraordinarily strong. After it finished, they said that they were going to persist with the way of working. Right, might seem really obvious, but how many of us have fallen into the habit of thinking or catch up on work by working in the evenings? Look, a lot of this will come down to whether you see yourself working in a creative role. If you work in a creative role, then deprioritizing sleep and working too much achieves exactly the opposite of what you think. If there's any thinking required in your job, your job is probably a lot more creative than you're giving it credit for. But having spent a lot of time this week looking at the jobs that robots are going to take, if you're not in a creative role, I'd really strongly advise a a bit of retraining in the next five years. Look, I think all of this, similar to Roe, similar to the things we've seen before, comes down to creating rules. My evening of emails was directly after a day where I was in internal meetings all day. And you know that feeling, you feel conflicted. People ask you to meet up and you feel honour bound to agree or you, you, you want to gift them the meeting. But by the end of eight hours in internal meetings, you feel like a hostage. Sort of, there's, a, there's a vague sort of passive aggression to the, the way you leave the office. And the truth is, like the Roe episode last time, those meetings should have been chats. Because probably eight, five-minute chats would have been energising and inspiring. Then I wouldn't have had to do the emails in the evening. Anyway, all this goes to prove I'm as much of an idiot as you lot. Thank you for listening. Uh, The website is eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. Coming up next is Sandy Pentland. I basically said when um, when I started this, I said to myself, if I get Sandy Pentland on... Who, who does a field called social physics. And I chat to the people who do row. Maybe I'll call it a day. I'm not going to call it a day because the week after that is Tony Schwartz from the, the book I've just mentioned before. The way we're working isn't working. Final shout out to, to Alex for his fabulous book, Rest, which uh, is out in the, it's, it's come out in the last couple of months. Thank you for listening. Appreciate it. Bye. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.